Well, we want to welcome you, uh, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. We're so glad that you've chosen to come this morning. And uh, I want to just point out in your program, there is a sermon notes form. And if you'd like to uh, to take notes this morning, that'll be helpful. For those of you who are in life groups, that will be especially helpful. And also in your program is a, uh, a list of our current groups that are all uh, doing a study that coordinates with these messages. And so if you um, are not in a group and would like to make connection with one, um, that information is there, and we can certainly uh, connect you. You can put that on your uh, on your uh, card and drop that in the box in the back, or you can talk with one of us about a day that works for you and a group that might work for you. Also in your program this morning is this bookmark that we've created for you, and I just I wanted to encourage you over these weeks to maybe put the Apostles' Creed to memory. And so this is uh, designed for you for that purpose. And uh, keep it somewhere where you can see it on a regular basis. And maybe over these weeks, uh, you will have memorized uh, the Apostles' Creed. Well, last week we did introduce the Apostles' Creed. If you missed it, uh, you can take it in on your own time by logging on to our central hub at mylpcole.com. You can click on the tab that's labeled simply Watch and then follow the prompts from there. Well, as we begin this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand again and let's declare our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. Stand with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Let me uh, offer just this one point of clarification for those of you who may not have been here last week that the word Catholic in the phrase the holy little C Catholic Church is not a reference to the Roman big C Catholic Church. The word Catholic means universal, and so it describes the fellowship of all those throughout the ages and around the world who have put their faith in Christ as their Savior and Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we uh, come to your word this morning, would you, Lord, by your Spirit, uh, meet with us? Would you infuse the words that I speak with the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you, Lord, uh, edit out that which is from me and uh, bring home with power that which is from you? that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning it's uh, my task to unpack for you what biblical Christians mean when we recite that first line, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Let's begin with the basic declaration that is there in the first four words. I believe in God. I believe in God. Our belief as Christians is neither in belief itself 
nor is it exercised for the sake of just believing in something. Uh, We must never be in league with those whose spiritual discernment goes no deeper than to say, as many do, well, religion can be helpful for many people. But of course, it doesn't matter what in particular you believe as long as you're sincere. As we saw last week, getting doctrine right is the key to getting everything else in life right. It's important to know and understand that if we begin with a wrong conception of who God is, we will misconstrue the entirety of the Christian faith. The late A.W. Tozer wrote that what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Well, notice with me that the creed begins where the Bible begins. The first four words of the English Bible are, in the beginning, God. And this is where we must begin. This is the starting point of a biblical worldview. It's the the launching pad for the journey of arriving at the goal of sound doctrine, an eternal God who stands before all time, before, over, and above creation. The prophet Moses exclaimed, before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There was a beginning. There was a beginning. The God whom we meet in the very first verse of the Bible, the God with whom we have to do, was there before the beginning, and he was there at the beginning. And when time comes to an end, and the earth is no more, he will still be there. He himself is the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. He is the author. He's the causative factor of all that exists. So let's go a little further. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. See, as God stood in eternity... Genesis 1, 1 1-2 describe conditions as dark, empty, desolate, and formless. So just close your eyes with me for a moment and imagine nothingness. Go ahead and do that. Just close your eyes. Imagine nothingness. You really can't do it, can you? And the reason that we can't do it is that our finite minds simply won't allow it. The only reason that we can imagine somethingness rather than nothingness is that we're part of the somethingness he created out of nothingness. And we're bounded by it. We're set within its boundaries. He is the creator and we are the created. So the creed begins where the Bible begins, but the creed also begins where biblical faith begins. The writer of Hebrews tells us in 11.6 that 
Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe, listen now, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, that he exists, that he is, that he rewards those who seek him. Biblical faith begins with the fundamental conviction, not just that God was in the past tense, but that God is in the present tense, that he exists, that he is knowable, he has made himself known, and that there is great reward in seeking him. God stands not within the circle of creation, but outside and above it. He stands outside of limits of time in the eternal now. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God said to us, you will seek me and find me when, when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. He rewards those who seek him. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. See, the Christian faith is not founded on some vague philosophy, nor is it founded on mere spirituality or on an abstract, impersonal deity. When a Christian confesses biblical faith, he or she is saying, I believe neither in gods nor in a God, but in the one true and living God. See, the statement is not we believe in God's little g, plural, but we believe in God, big G, singular. He who alone is God. Nor do we put our faith in just any old God at all. We believe in the one true and living God who is revealed to us in the Bible, who exists eternally in three co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this God says of himself through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And again, before me no God was formed nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. The Apostles' Creed follows this initial declaration regarding belief in God with three descriptors, Father, Almighty, and creator of heaven and earth. I'm going to address them in reverse order for the simple reason that in Scripture we encounter God first as creator. Secondly, we come to understand him as almighty God, and then we experience him as father. So let's begin with this. He is the creator. He is the creator. In the beginning, again, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That phrase, the heavens and the earth, 
represent all of creation, whether it's spiritual or material. It's a comprehensive expression, including everything and excluding nothing. He made it all. It's all his. The earth is the Lord's. He reigns supreme over it all. And throughout Scripture, he's referred to with titles such as God Most High, Possessor of Heaven and Earth, or the Lord God of Israel who made heaven and earth, or the God of heaven and earth. Jesus himself referred to God in prayer as my Father, Lord of heaven and earth. In the words of the hymn writer, this is my Father's world. The witness of Scripture is that God created ex nihilo, which in Latin means out of nothing. And that the means of creation was his word, his command, that he spoke all of it into existence. In Genesis 1, nine times over the course of the six days of creation, he speaks a command on, and on each occasion, that which he commands comes out of nothingness into being. The psalmist wrote, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Generally, when we read the word God in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a reference to God the Father. If we're thinking in Trinitarian terms, as we read in the Old Testament the word God, it's a reference to the Father. So it is here in Genesis 1 and 2. Yet as we examine the whole of the biblical record, we discover that the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were each present and active in the creative process. Again, in the, the book of the prophet Isaiah, we read, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. In the New Testament, we learn that God the Son, Jesus Christ, was also active in the creation. John says of him, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, through God the Son. And without him was not made anything that was made. In the same way, the Apostle Paul wrote, By him, speaking of Jesus, God's Son, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And by the way, let me just pause right there. That that phrase, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, is a reference to spiritual rulers, 
spiritual powers, spiritual forces. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, Jesus, all things hold together. And again, the writer of Hebrews put it this way, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now listen to what he says about the Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And notice what's being said there about God the Son. The sense is that he is the principal actor in creation. The triune God together were involved, but it seems that Jesus, God's Son, was the principal actor. Not only did he speak things into being, but in that final phrase there in verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says that that it is he, Jesus, who upholds the universe today by the word of his power. What does that mean? It means that we continue to exist simply because he says so. That as he continues to speak sustenance, he continues to speak uh, strength, he continues to speak cohesiveness in the universe. And when he decides that it's time for the universe to stop holding together, then he will speak that as well. The Bible says that day is coming. In Genesis 1, we see God the Holy Spirit also engaged in the work of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, was hovering over the face of the waters. By the way, if you have your Bible or you're taking notes, just make note of that for when we come to our discussion of Jesus having been born of the Virgin Mary, that phrase, hovering. Belief in God as creator, then, is a conviction that arises from faith. In Hebrews 11, the writer engages the nature and the expression of faith itself. And as exhibit A of the matter of personal faith, he writes, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, after all of the debate, And all the shouting ends, the conviction that God spoke creation into existence by his powerful word rests on faith. Belief in God as creator is a faith stance. It is not primarily a scientific one. And an absence of belief that God created is, in fact, no more scientific for the simple reason that scientific method of systematic observation, measurement, experiment, the formulation, testing, and modification of hypotheses cannot be applied to the creation. Why? (laughs) 
because we weren't there. We are too far removed. To the pseudoscientists like Carl Sagan, whose creed declares that the cosmos is all that there is or was or ever will be. I was thinking of trying to say that like he says, Seth used to say it, but I, I couldn't quite manage it. The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be who willfully and intentionally exclude God from the picture. God says, as he said to Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. In other words, man up. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you? when I laid the foundation of the earth. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Why, I would have loved to have been there at that moment, wouldn't you? See, the Bible asserts that The truth is self-evident. It's self-evident. It cannot be denied, but it can be suppressed. It cannot be denied, but it can be suppressed. Psalm 19, for example, David wrote, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. The Apostle Paul issued this warning that still rings so true in our world today. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The American writer and philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson captured this truth when he wrote, All I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator for all I have not seen. See, as we think about what the the Bible says about God as Creator, it is so woven throughout the entirety of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that it is difficult for me to conceive of anyone claiming to be a biblical Christian and denying that God is the creator. Next, he is almighty. In Hebrew, that name is El Shaddai, God almighty. To say that God is almighty is to acknowledge, first of all, that he will accomplish all that he intends. It's probably a pretty good simple summary of the whole matter. He will accomplish all that he intends. There's no inadequacy, no insufficiency in him. 
One of the essential problems that we humans have in understanding God and even accepting that he is our creator is that the God we believe in is far, far too small. And our estimation of ourselves, our human intellect and ingenuity is far, far too large. We live in the imaginary land of far, far. In Psalm 50, God rebukes the arrogance of mankind saying, you thought I was exactly like you. You thought I was exactly like you. Corollary, of course, to that is that in our arrogance, we think we are exactly like him. We make ourselves out to be God or gods, and in so doing, we put ourselves in the crosshairs of the one who will not share his glory with another. There's a well-known quotation attributed to Mark Twain, who knows who actually said it. God created man in his own image, and man, being tickled by that fact, has been returning the favor ever since. See, the Bible represents God, presents God as infinite in power, infinite in authority. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. He is all-present, and he is supremely good. To say that God is almighty is to say that for God, nothing is impossible. Nothing. In Genesis 18, it's written that the Lord appeared to old Abraham and old Sarah, well past childbearing years, and said to them, at this time next year, you will have a son. And when she heard it, Sarah, who was not only old but childless, laughed to herself saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And you know the rest of the story. She did. And they named him Isaac, which means laughter. Is anything too hard for the Lord? When the angel Gabriel visited the Virgin Mary in Nazareth to announce to her that she would become the mother of Messiah, she, at the far opposite end of the the life cycle from Sarah, logically asked the how question. How, How will I conceive in my womb and bear a son, since I am not now, nor have I ever been sexually active? And the angel answered her in these words, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, there's another story, in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. And again, we know the rest of the story, don't we? What the angel said happened, and it happened just as he said. They named him Yeshua, Jesus, for nothing will be impossible with God. There's a song that used to be sung frequently in Sunday schools by children, the chorus to which says, My God is so big, so great, and so mighty. 
There's nothing my God cannot do. Amen to that. See, we, we should never allow the limits of our intellect to limit our faith in the power of God. But rather in childlike faith, trust him to accomplish all of his purpose, to fulfill all of his promises. He is creator. He is almighty. And third, the Bible tells us that he is the father. And in saying that, we're acknowledging that he is all-powerful and he is also personal. He's all-powerful and he's also personal. The Bible presents God not as some distant, aloof, unknowable deity, but as a loving, attentive father with whom we can enjoy a personal relationship. He's knowable. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 6, God is described as the father of Israel. The prophet Hosea spoke of God as a father carrying Israel as a child with kindness and with love. In Psalm 68, David described God as a father to the fatherless. You know, it's possible that you're here this morning and you may have difficulty thinking of God and relating to God as your father because your relationship with your earthly father was problematic in some way. You may have been abusive, may have been cold and uncaring, irresponsible, addicted, or largely absent from your life. Or a combination of all of those things. You, you may feel as if you were cheated out of having a real healthy, loving father. And you are not alone in that. Some of you who are fathers now, who had that experience, may feel that you're consequentially lacking a healthy role model for parenting your own children. And I would never want to minimize the reality of the pain and the loss that you have experienced. What I would like to say to you, however, is that you must look beyond your earthly father to your heavenly father because he is the ultimate prototype for that model. He is holy. We are sinful. He is perfect. We are far from. So my encouragement to you, if if that has been your experience, is that you go deep into the word of God, that you get to know who he is and allow his Holy Spirit to work godly character and conduct into your life. That you would draw close to other men who, though they are imperfect as well, are nevertheless models of godly fatherhood and learn from them so that you can break the cycle in your family, that you would be enabled to increasingly reflect the fatherly love and leadership of God to your own children as he takes up residence in your life and transforms you from the inside out. As we think of the fatherhood of God theologically, as we think of it in large, broad terms, it's important to dispel another false understanding that seems to be pervasive, which simply put says that we are not all God's children. We are not all God's children. It's true that we all 
at every moment depend on God as our creator for our very existence. And to call creatorship fatherhood is actually not an unscriptural concept. In fact, the prophet Malachi asked, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And in Acts 17.28, quoting a pagan poet, the apostle Paul said to his listeners on Mars Hill, we are indeed his offspring. But, It's important to note a couple of things in that regard. First, both of those quotations come from passages that threaten divine judgment. They're not warm, fuzzy, kumbaya kind of conversations. Second, the larger context of Paul's quotation in Acts 17 indicates that to be God's offspring implies an obligation. And that obligation includes seeking him, worshiping him, obeying him, and realizing that we'll be answerable to him at the last day. We will face Christ as our judge. But it does not imply his favor and acceptance where repentance of sins and personal faith in Jesus Christ are absent. So as much as our culture wants to embrace the universalist notion of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, and as much as we like to sing with Michael Jackson and his friends, we are the world, we are the children, and as much as we would like to believe that everyone will be saved in the end, that is not the biblical view. Instead, when the New Testament speaks of the fatherhood of God, it makes two vital connections. The first has to do with the inner life of the triune God. Paul opens his letter to the Ephesian believers this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus called God his Father, and the Father called Jesus his Son. Jesus called God his Father. The Father called Jesus his Son. Jesus said to his disciples, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And to the Jewish leaders, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And on two occasions, at Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan River, and again on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's written that God spoke audibly from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The second vital connection to the fatherhood of God in the New Testament is that through faith in Jesus we receive adoption as children of God. In the preamble to his gospel, John wrote regarding Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So remember and, and don't miss the power and the significance of the fact that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven. He invited us who believe in him to address his Father as our Father. You remember when Mary Magdalene encountered the risen Christ near the garden tomb? She thought at first that he was the gardener, and then he revealed himself to her, and he instructed her to go and tell his disciples this. And listen to the words that Jesus spoke. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus invites us into the same relationship, same quality of relationship, the same kind of relationship that he enjoys, has eternally enjoyed with God the Father. Listen to these amazing words from the Apostle Paul. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear Son. story is told of a very wealthy art collector whose wife died early. They had one son. That one son went off to war and came back in a casket. This man, this wealthy man, was broken. Then one day there came a knock at the door and another young man was standing there. He said, you don't know me, but I knew your son. We shared a foxhole together. And I happened to be a sketch artist and I drew this picture of your son. He was my friend and I just wanted you to have it. And so this man who's Taste and art were exquisite. Received the picture and opened this folded piece of paper and with tears in his eyes recognized his son. And yet it was a crude drawing. This, this young man was not a polished artist. But he treasured that picture. for all the years of his life, and then he passed away, and his vast art collection went up for auction. And included in that vast art collection was this crude drawing of his son that he had lovingly framed. And so the the bidders came, and the auction began, 
And the auctioneer said, the first item for auction is this picture. And he held up the framed picture of this man's son. And the bidder said, no one wants that picture. Who cares about that picture? Why would anyone want that picture? And the auctioneer said, nevertheless, this is the first item. And only one person bid on that, on that picture. And he paid a very small price for it. No one else was interested. And the auctioneer said, gentlemen, gentle ladies, with this, the auction is now closed. And they were saying, what? What are you talking about? We came to, to bid on all of this art. The auctioneer said, in the owner's estate, in his will, is clearly articulated, he who takes the son takes it all. He who takes the son takes it all. See, when we confess our faith in the words of this opening clause of the Apostles' Creed, we can bring it all together, tie it all together to acknowledge that our Creator the Almighty God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and now our Father as well. By adoption through personal faith in Him, think of it, the Almighty God who created you, loves you with an everlasting love. The Father who perfectly loves the Son also loves you perfectly as His very own son or daughter. And if you don't know Christ today, if you don't know God as your Father, I invite you today, he who takes the Son takes it all. And all the wealth and all of the love, all the treasures of heaven, all the glories of eternity, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives in the here and now, all that he offers becomes ours when we receive his Son. We enter into a family relationship with God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you today for the power of your word. We've covered a lot of material very, very rapidly today. By your Holy Spirit, would you bring it home to each of us? And Lord, I pray for those who today are standing outside of the family of God, Lord, that you would work in their hearts and invite them in. I can speak words of invitation, but unless your spirit does the same, nothing really changes. And so, Lord, would you draw each of us into relationship and into a deepening relationship that we would believe not only in God, but believe into him and move increasingly and more deeply into the fullness of the relationship for which you have saved us and into which you invite us through the blood of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.